Hey friends, Science Mike here. Show's going to be a little different this week, uh, as you can tell by the lack of a snazzy intro. Um, I've had a motorcycle accident. I've got a concussion. Expected to be back on my feet pretty quickly, and I saw some specialists today who indicate that I've actually traumatized my brain stem uh, as part of the accident, and I'm going to have some symptoms longer than I expected. And it's no big deal or anything, uh, <laughs> but it means for a few weeks I'm very limited in the amount of time I can look at computers and limited in the amount of time I can read, and those are critical parts of being Science Mike using the computer to write and to record podcasts and reading so that I give you guys great answers to your questions. But I didn't want to keep having dead air and missing episodes. I know this is part of your weekly rhythm. Frankly, I enjoy spending my weeks with you probably more than you enjoy spending time with me. And uh, so I had a crazy idea. I called up my friend Rob Bell, uh, who's going to host this week's show. I sent him some faith and life questions. I know it's Ask Science Mike, but we talk about science, faith, and life, and Rob knows a lot about science, and he knows even more about faith and about life, and he's agreed to guest host this week's program. Next week, we'll probably have a live edition of the show, depending on whether I'm able to pull that off uh, or not in a live environment, and then the following week, we'll either have another guest host or I'll be back on the show. I want to thank everyone who's heard about this and sent me notes of encouragement. I really appreciate it. I am doing okay. I do have some concentration issues, some verbal issues. I get little verbal tics and stutters. My reading comprehension is, is quite bad. I actually took a test today, and I've gone from the high 90th percentile in reading comprehension to the 10th. <laughs> so I laugh so that I don't cry. Um, but this week's going to be a great show. I haven't heard it, but I know Rob's amazing. And um, for those of you who don't know Rob Bell... He's a multi-New York Times bestselling author. He wrote Love Wins. He wrote Velvet Elvis. Uh, he wrote What We Talk When We Talk About God. He's got a very popular podcast called The Robcast. He's been on tour with Oprah. I can't imagine there's more than a handful of people have heard of me and haven't heard of Rob. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the reins over to Rob for an episode of Ask Science Mike that I've never heard. Hey, Greg, roll that theme song. Hi friends, and welcome to Ask Science Mike. This is Rob Bell. Science Mike called me a few days ago, and he said, Rob, hit my head, bonked my melon on a motorbike accident, and I need to know if you'll do my Ask Science Mike podcast. Of course I said yes, because I love that Science Mike. So you all sent a bunch of questions, and we're going to get to those in a minute, but I figured first I should tell you some Science Mike stories. Does that sound good? Uh, because I first met Mike, this would have been May of 2012. He came to an event I was doing in California and he uh, raised his hand and he said, I'm an atheist and I have some questions for you. And then he proceeded to ask me a number of questions in front of the group. And I remember thinking, A, this dude is smart, <laughs> but B, what struck me was his heart. 
he was hungry and and searching for a meal. It was like he was thirsty and he was not going to give up till he found some water. I was really struck with this is a fascinating human being because there is extraordinary intellectual horsepower here, but it's melded to this giant expansive heart that is so hungry for meaning and transcendence and soul. And we became friends after that. And I would interact with him and I was consistently struck with his ability to take the complex and make it accessible to normal people like you and I. And I would think to myself, it's not just that he knows a lot, he's able to articulate it in such a clear way. It's a really extraordinary thing he can do. It's not just the intellect. It's not just the heart. It's it's even the way that he communicates it. It's funny because I did this uh, liturgist podcast with him and we were sound checking and he had the headphones on and he was talking to the mic and he kept saying, man, I love the sound of my voice through a mic. I just love the sound of my voice and headphones. And we were laughing and we were all like, yeah, it's because you have a great voice. It's not just that he has a great voice for communicating. It's It's the alchemy of everything that you and I know to be science. Mike, that I would keep thinking he really has some a gift here. So one time we were at a party. This would have been a year after I met him. We were at a party in uh, Denver. And um, I'm on the couch. He's sitting on the floor in front of the fireplace. And people are doing that thing that they do at parties where they're in, talking in groups of like two or three. And I remember thinking, I'm going to try something here. And uh, so I said, Science Mike, I had some question like, tell me what's happening in my brain when I, I think it was sing or learn or hear something interesting. And he launched into one of his explanations, which are riveting, as you know. And what was so fascinating is the whole room, every other conversation stopped. It's like everybody just went and zoned right in and listened. And you could tell people who didn't know who he is. I could watch people's faces like, who the, who is this dude? Who is this interesting? And then I asked him a second question and asked him a third question. And I remember thinking, this man has an extraordinary gift. I can't imagine how many people he's going to be able to help. If he pursues this, if he throws himself into it, if he goes for it, there's no ceiling on what could happen with this extraordinary gift that this person has. I literally, uh, let me see my phone. I actually have a picture that I took that night of him sitting there in front of the fireplace talking because I remember thinking, don't forget this moment because years from now, who knows where he's going to end up. So to be doing this podcast with you all and to have just watched his voice grow, watch him own his uh, path, yeah, I feel like I got in a front row seat to watch something really, really, really beautiful. And uh, so the chance to get to talk to you all and to have just watched this thing from the very beginning, it's just a really moving thing for me. So you all have sent in some questions and I'm going to uh, go after them and let's see what happens. So uh, first question, hi, Science Mike. I honestly doubt you will ever see this, but needed to voice it anyway, which is really interesting. This is from Alyssa. Alyssa, Science Mike did see it and he read it and he sent it to me. So he did see it. So here's the thing, Alyssa writes, you talk a lot about doubting, but not so much what to do when you've lost your faith altogether, as I know you have. 
She says, I've been deconstructing my faith for years, trying to come up with a form of God I could live with that still reflected the Bible in some way, but my emotional baggage from past spiritual abuse has proved too much, and I just don't feel like I can justify believing in Jesus and being part of this tradition anymore. So I've been crying for days, mourning the loss of the God who meant so much to me. And then she asks for advice on how do you find community? Where where do you uh, meet other non-religious people? So first off, Alyssa, I I can feel like in your question, uh, like a lifetime, there's a weight there. And so let me just say this. Everything you articulate in your email is totally normal. Totally normal. I can't tell you how many people I have sat with who have expressed the exact same things and how many of the things you talk about in your email. I know exactly what you're talking about from personal experience. So uh, a couple thoughts. First, we are not abused or wronged by institutions. It's impossible for the church to hurt somebody or betray somebody or abuse somebody. People hurt people. So when somebody says they're angry with the church, which you didn't say in your email, but when you hear somebody say something like they're angry with the church or they're angry with the government or they're angry with that business that fired them, that's impossible. You cannot be angry with an institution, an arrangement, or an organization or a corporation. You can only be angry with people. So people hurt people. And sometimes we get stuck because we are thinking about the wrong in terms of an amorphous, faceless organization. And the problem is you can't forgive a faceless organization. And so that's why we get stuck in bitterness. So first off, I I assume you know this from, from your question, you're going to need to forgive the people who abused you. And to forgive them, you're going to need to name it. Um, Spiritual abuse is awful, and I can't imagine what you've been through, but you're going to have to name all of the wrong because you can't forgive that which hasn't been named and articulated. Um, And forgiveness is a process. It doesn't mean you condone what they did. By the way, I just did a whole series of podcasts about this because one of the things I've learned over the years is that so many of us have somebody that we need to forgive, but we haven't realized it, so we're just sort of carrying it everywhere we go. You're going to need to forgive all of those people and to forgive them by name for what they did. And that may mean dragging up exactly what they did. But often what happens is we take intellectual conceptions and they get muddled up with interrelational wounds. And then it all just feels like a giant hairball. And so we have an intellectual conception of God that no longer works, but it's so intricately tied in with people who deeply disappointed and let us down that it all just feels like the same thing. So one of the things first to do is you got to separate it. There are some people who hurt you. We're going to need to begin to forgive them. And that might take a while. Forgiveness is a process. Um, If you wake up in two days and you're a little less angry than you were, then we celebrate that. When it comes to forgiveness, you celebrate movement wherever you find it. Secondly, then you forgive them so that the cruelty of others or the ignorance or others, or the abuse of others will not rob you of your joy, will not rob you of wonder and awe, of great music and great food, of oceans and mountains and a walk in the woods, of gratitude for this extraordinary gift of life. 
Because Alyssa, you're breathing and you're here on this rock hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour. This whole thing is a gift. This whole, you're breathing. You just received another gift of breath. You have another day here. There is this extraordinary opportunity all of us have to experience everything there is in this thing that we call life. And when we fail, when we don't forgive, we're allowing others to rob us of the joy of this gift. So forgiveness isn't just about setting them free and finding out that it's you. Forgiveness isn't just about moving on. Forgiveness is about you being fully alive right now, which leads me to the part about God. Um, Secondly, it's totally normal that you would leave a particular conception of God behind. That is an absolutely healthy and sometimes necessary part of growing maturity and faith and evolving consciousness. Totally normal. So the form of God that you had doesn't work anymore. So leave it behind. Not a big deal. Honestly, not a big deal. Now, I know it appears like a big deal, probably because for many of us, our conceptions of God are so deeply tied into our tribe, to maybe family, extended family, professors, mentors, friends, roommates, lovers, whatever it is. Oftentimes, our conceptions of God are so deeply tied in with our relationships in the tribe that handed us that conception of God. But here's the problem with using the phrase non-religious. I've met lots of people who are like, I don't go to church anymore. That's ridiculous. I meet on Sundays at a pub with my friends and we talk about our lives and what matters and we do it every Sunday and it's the best thing ever. Well, that is, that is replacing one ritual with another. It's beautiful, but you have a deep innate human longing for meaning, hope, and transcendence. So often what happens is people have a bad religious experience and then say, well, then I just need to leave the whole religious thing but it will come up under a different name because you will intuitively search for a new path and you will want community and you'll want some bread and wine and some good music and someone to walk with you through sorrow and someone to share in your joy. And so it's totally normal that this conception of God needs to be left behind and you will need to grieve that. And so what you've demonstrated already in your email is you realize this greeting is like the death of a phase of your life, but the new thing can't come until you grieve and let go of the old thing. That's how it works. So stay on the path and be brutally honest about all of your emotions. Drag it all up because what you will discover is such an amazing, big, wide, beautiful world as you move forward. Now, a bit about Jesus. Jesus comes to teach us compassion, grace, integrity, to give us courage, to help us stand with the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. Jesus didn't hurt you. Some of his followers did. And to forgive them, it's really important not to confuse compassion Grace, courage, fidelity with the downtrodden, integrity with those who hurt you. Because Jesus invites you to be a part of something new happening in the world. The cross is actually an act of solidarity. Jesus joins us in the absence of God. It's the presence in the absence. 
And so I, I would just want to make sure that you weren't throwing out the whole thing when there, in fact, may be something in there that is still inviting you to be a part of the new thing happening in the world. This tradition is rooted in the healing grace and love of the divine. This tradition is rooted in a group of people who believe that you can forgive others and you can extend this forgiving love to the world, that you can stand with those who need your energy, time, resources, love, and compassion. This tradition is rooted in the great mystery that we're all loved, that we're all sons and daughters, that we're all part of the same family, and that there's hope for us and there's hope for our world. And I doubt that you want to leave that. But are there a lot of things within that that got sort of mixed in there that need to be left behind? Yep. And it's absolutely, totally normal. And then you got a question about friends. Here's the thing. You make friends with whoever helps you wake up. You make friends with whoever helps you be you, the true Alyssa. You make friends where you find the life. Who helps you wake up to this extraordinary gift of your life? And what you will discover is that you will find friends in all sorts of interesting places. So think about it like an adventure, like a discovery, like a hunt. You're grieving, but you're also beginning this extraordinary, interesting search and hunt. And that is something to enjoy. Another question here. This is Anna, and Anna says she just stumbled on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she's been devouring the episodes, and it speaks volumes to her soul. I love it. Um, she was raised in a very conservative home, grew up with a narrow view of faith. She's cringed at, at the idea of calling myself a Christian for a while, but one of the most freeing things she's heard and it's really starting to unpack is that the Bible is actually a library of books, more than one finite and divinely authored one. Oh, I'm so glad Mike has been talking about that. Yes, Anna, it's a library of funky books written on three different continents by 40 authors over a 1,400-year period of time. It's a book written, written by people. And so she's asking, how do you, believing what you do about the Bible, approach it, learn from it, and be inspired by it? Um, great question. Great, great question. Okay, first off, um, the Bible was written by real people in real places at real times. Sometimes people, the question they keep asking about the Bible is, is it true or do they believe it? But sometimes what you need in order to reboot things is to change the categories. So set aside the idea of believing or not believing it, or is it true or not for now, and ask new questions with new categories. So here's one example, and here's one driving thing that will absolutely light up how you read the Bible, and that's this. When you read it, simply ask, why did people write this down? Why? What was interesting about this story, this poem, this rant, this letter? Why did people find the need to write this down? And then why did it endure? That question alone will take you so many interesting places. So here's an example. There's a story in the Bible about Jonah being swallowed by a whale. Now, the Assyrians were brutal neighbors of the Israelites. They made their life a living hell. They persecuted them. I mean, rape and pillage. The Assyrians were absolutely brutal to the Israelites. The story of Jonah and the whales about a man named Jonah who's told to go share redeeming, redemptive love with the Assyrians. Now, the uh, capital of Assyria was Nineveh. 
So when the man Jonah is told, go to Nineveh and share with them this redeeming message, and Jonah goes the opposite direction, what often happens, and probably if you heard the story growing up, is you're like, see, Jonah ran away from God and disobeyed. But I guarantee you the audience would have cheered Jonah on. The original audience of the Jonah and the whale story would have been like, that's my boy Jonah. No way am I going to Nineveh. Nineveh was like the Death Star. You know what I mean? So when you read the story, I guarantee you the crowd was cheering Jonah on because he went the other direction. They would have had tremendous solidarity with Jonah because what? Jonah is supposed to go to the enemy? No way. Those people have made our life miserable. So the story is about a man named Jonah who goes the opposite direction and finally realizes, uh, I probably should go back to them. So the story about Jonah, it's easy to get distracted by the whole swallowed by a whale thing. But the story of Jonah and the whale raises this question for its original audience. Can you move on from the past? Can you forgive the Assyrians? Can you heal from those wounds and not just heal from the wounds and forgive your persecutor and oppressor, but can you then move towards your greatest enemy in love? See, this was a story that would have spoken to an entire nation. This story would have spoken to all Israelites and would have said, I know that the Assyrians have made your life a living hell. Can you be big enough to forgive and then move toward them in love? So when people make it about the whale and argue about whether or not somebody got swallowed by a whale, actually the literalism there and people insisting that if it says you got swallowed by a whale, then I got swallowed by a whale, and there's no way you can challenge that. The Taking it literally and making that the point of the story, you have people telling you you have to believe it exactly like it says it happened, is actually a distraction from the much more penetrating personal questions the story asks, which are, can you forgive your worst persecutor and move towards them in love? Do you see how you read the story? Can be It can go from just a, oh my word, I have to believe this fantasy stuff, to, whoa, now that is a story that is very old and very fresh, correct? The question of can we move on from the past and can we forgive our worst tormentors? So when you read the story of Jonah and the whale, the question is, what was going on? Where was Nineveh, the capital of Assyria? Why do we know about the Assyrians? Oh, Now, this becomes a much, much more interesting story. And at the end, of course, Jonah is bitter about all that God has done for the Assyrians. So what is the storyteller doing right there? The storyteller is saying to the Israelites, you have to move to a higher stage of consciousness in which you can acknowledge that your God moves in other people that other people have favor as well. You think you're so special. I'm telling you, this God has favor for everyone. It's a story of expanding consciousness and evolving awareness. Now, questions then. What's going on in this story? What was the world like? What's the story unfolding here? You begin with the human and you work your way to the divine. You begin with the human in these stories and you ask yourself, is there something else going on? Here's an example. Noah and the flood. When people say, do you believe uh, there was a flood? Of course, there were lots of floods. 
there were lots of floods in the ancient world. And in the area of the ancient world where the story of Noah and the flood comes from, there were lots of floods, flash floods. So you're out with your family, you're working your plot of land, and all of a sudden a wall of water comes through and washes everything you know away. That's what actually happened to people. And remember, you've never been up in a plane. You have no Google satellite images. You've probably only been a couple miles from your house your entire life. So the Noah and the flood story, those people who experienced those flash floods, all they knew is all of a sudden water came out of nowhere and washed everything away. Can you see in a much earlier time in human history, can you see why people would try to figure out why this happened? To this day, we do this. We try to figure out why stuff happens. And you can see why people would have begun to attribute divine causation to these stories. You can see how people began to say, well, someone must be angry with me because a giant wall of water wiping everything away would tend to feel like anger, correct? So you can see why people had their gods and goddesses and they just drew the conclusion somebody somewhere is clearly angry with us. So a number of stories came out of that time and that place that were flood stories. And in those flood stories, people were searching for meaning and explanations just like we do now for why things happen the way they do. And one of the explanations was obviously we have not been living right and the gods are angry with us. So in the ancient flood stories, generally at the end, the god destroys everybody because the god is in judgment of how people had been living. The Noah story, though, starts like the other flood stories, but then it ends with this god saying, I'm never going to do that again because my intention essentially is to bless you. Whoa! Now, here's a really interesting thing. This was a new idea in human history because at that time, what the gods do is they punish you. This story was about a god whose intention is not to destroy and punish you, but to bless you and make peace with you. This was a new idea in evolving human consciousness. The Bible is a library of books that reflect evolving human consciousness. So when people think, oh, all that primitive Old Testament stuff, wait, 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 wait. These stories were incredibly progressive for their day. If you read it in the context of where and when it happened, all of the sudden it becomes extraordinarily interesting and progressive and enlightening because people are being met in their world, on their terms, and their metaphors, but then invited to take a step forward. So you do that with this book. You simply ask what was going on at the time, where were people living, what was happening with government, what was happening with politics, what was happening with armies, what was happening with resources, what kind of genre is this, what's the human story unfolding here? And this book will come to life in extraordinary ways. Another question. Hey, Science Mike. And then this person asks, A frequent way I have been trying to get a few of my Baptist friends to see the value in other religions and spiritual teachings is by showing them that powerful spiritual experiences are universal in all faiths and even with people of no faith at all. What I keep running into is their idea that because of those experiences being of other belief systems and they must not be from God, because why would God act in religions that aren't ours? Am I asking them too much to be that open-minded? And if so, how can I help them see the common ground of all belief systems? Great, great, great question. Um, Okay, first off, let's just take that phrase, 
I have been trying to get a few of my Baptist friends. Here's the thing. You can't take people where they don't want to go. Your Baptist friends might not want to go where you have gone. They might not want to understand what you understand. You can't take people where they don't want to go. So the brutal reality is that it works for some people where they're at. Everything nice and neat, black and white, all of the categories sorted. For some people, the thing that they're in, it just works for them. And what happens is you, you, you don't see it like that anymore. So here's the thing. When you see, you can't unsee. And when you taste, you can't untaste. So once the genie is out of the bottle, you can't stuff it back in. (laughs) So when you grow in your awareness, the danger is that your growing awareness would work against their awareness. So what happens sometimes is we have tasted something. We have tasted a bigger, wider, more expansive view, and we are liberated. We have been set free. Are you with me? We cannot go back to that narrow, fundamentalist, crazy, backwards thing. We can't do it. And so what happens is we go around trying to convince everybody to see what we've seen. But until they have seen it as well, you may actually be working, your growing awareness may be working against their growing awareness. So sometimes... You have to not have conversations because all you're going to do is get you more frustrated and they're going to be more confused. And the last thing your enlightenment is going to appear to them to be is enlightenment. That's actually why Jesus talked about throwing pearls before swine. Pearls are good things. He was essentially saying, be careful about throwing good things in front of people that may become negatives. So let me just say that up front. My friend who has Baptist friends, your friends might not be ready. Now, secondly, there's always a chance that your friends are hungry and that you have honest intellectual exchanges where people are actually intelligently discussing things and listening to each other and you're actually having the kind of give and take that happens in really healthy friendships. If that's the case, and if they're actually saying to you, what do you mean, friend of us Baptists? (laughs) The scripture the, the, the Bible is a library of books about how God is bigger than any one religion. I assume that's very straightforward. But the Bible is a book about a God who is always bigger than whatever human beings cooked up to describe that God. So right away, early in the Bible, Abraham, who, you know, Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. And so are you. Abraham is the founder. He's the center of the Jewish story as it, as it sort of explodes into the world. And so we're told Abraham, Abraham's the one who's going to, the nation's going to come out of him. It's going to bless the whole world. Abraham, Abraham. And then what happens? Melchizedek comes up out of nowhere and he's a high priest of God. What? What? Right away in the opening chapters of the Bible, somebody shows up out of nowhere who happens to be the high priest of God and Abraham honors him. (laughs) So you have to understand again and again, by the way, in the Old Testament, who's the Messiah in the Old Testament? Oh yeah, Cyrus, the king of the Persians, the pagan king Cyrus, the word the prophet uses to describe him, it says, God calls Cyrus my Messiah. Yeah, exactly. 
What does Paul say when he's on Acts 17? The God in whom we live and move and have our being. Is he talking to Jewish people there? No. Is he talking to Christians there? No. Who's he talking to? Greek philosophers. When the Apostle Paul has a chance to talk to Greek philosophers, he does not mention Jesus. He does not mention the disciples. What does he say? The God in whom we live and move and have our being. And he quotes their philosophers. So the Bible is a library of books about the divine being who transcends whatever human conceptions we've cooked up to understand and articulate and form boundaries around this divine being. So one more thought. When your Baptist friends don't believe that God would act in religions beyond them, they aren't being true to their own tradition. When your Baptist friends do not believe that God works anywhere in humanity but among them in their religion, they aren't being true to their own tradition. You are the traditional one because the tradition, the tradition is this awareness that the divine will always transcend whatever conceptions and categories and systems we have created. I mean, think about the Jesus stories. Every time in Jesus' culture, the establishment says, these people are in, these people are out, these people are on God's side, these people aren't. What does Jesus do? It says, no, actually, the people who think they're in are actually out. The people who everybody's decided are out are actually in. Every system that gets created to demarcate who's in and who's out, Jesus essentially sides with the out people. This book is a book about radical inclusion. This scripture is about the movement of the divine being. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it over and over and over again from the Psalms to early in Genesis all the way through to Revelation. The whole thing endlessly announces that whatever you've cooked up, the divine is at work in it, through it, and beyond it. One more. Hi, Science Mike. I love the show. It's always been a great way to start off Monday morning. My question is, what do you think worldwide reaction would really be if we became aware of intelligent alien life in these three scenarios? What a great question. Intelligent alien life. Then the person says, what if there was a clear sign of life? Um, What if aliens show up and land on the White House lawn? Or um, what if the government revealed that they'd actually been in contact with aliens for years but didn't think the public was ready for that knowledge? So here's the questions the person asks. Would there be panic and mayhem? Would it bring humanity together? Would the general public care? What do you think the spiritual repercussions would be? And lastly, is this something you would want to see played out in your lifetime? (laughs) Oh, you, you science mic people are awesome. What a great question. First off, I was at a party just recently with the head of all rockets at JPL, Jet Propulsion Labs. So this man is in charge of everything that we put into space. And he said, and he's been around forever, and he's just sort of a legend in the science community. And he said, oh, Rob, not, he's in his, what, mid-70s. He said, probably not in my lifetime, he says, but in yours, we'll discover life on other planets. He's like, I'm confident of that. It will happen. Oh, yeah. And then he continued drinking his wine like it was totally normal. <laughs> Isn't that great? Okay, so um, here's what I think. First, it would be exactly like it is now. That's what I think. It would be exactly like it is now. Um, so here's what I mean. First off, personally, I'd love it. 
How absolutely awesome would that be? It would reaffirm what I already know about the diversity and depth and surprise of the universe. I mean, science, what could be more awesome than all of the things science is teaching us about this big, beautiful, exotic, heartbreaking, I mean, amazing world? Um, By the way, the earth is 71% covered in water. 95% of that water is totally unexplored. So think about every octopus, manta ray, shark, whale, every weird sea creature we have ever discovered, we discovered in the 5% of water that we have explored. So when people say like, oh man, we've all, we, we've just, I mean, human beings, we've discovered it. Really? We haven't even gotten started on the ocean and that's on this planet. So my assumption is that human history will continue to be this mind-blowing trip where we are learning about endless diversity and depth, and it just we just never come to the end of it. So aliens, oh my goodness, how fantastic would that be? So how would people react? They would react exactly like they do now to everything. Some people would be threatened. And, and honestly, uh, if you're talking about spirituality or faith, for some people, their entire thing would fall apart because Jesus came to the earth to save. So what about saving? Like for some people, the whole salvation narrative would completely fall apart. So they'd be threatened. Some would simply analyze. It would become an intellectual exercise. What does this mean? They would simply cite data. Um, Some would capitalize. So some would be threatened. Some would analyze. Some would capitalize. Can you imagine the t-shirts? Some would just think, okay, how can we make money on this? Some would deny it. Just like people are denying climate change right now, some people would just simply deny it. They would say, ah, it's just uh, CGI, right? (laughs) It's a holographic technology. And then some would see it as even more evidence for the diversity and depth and surprise of the universe. It would just bring even more joy. Unless, of course, the aliens completely destroyed us. But um, some would just see it as the most fascinating thing ever. And then what would happen is there would be a new normal. Everybody would freak out. It would have all sorts of press. It would have endless, endless, endless commentary and discussion, and then it would become the new normal. It would become just how we see things. And I would add, historically, imagine imagine around the time of Kepler and, and Galileo when, when the first scientists said that the Earth isn't the center of the universe. I mean, imagine when people really began to process that the earth is not the center of the universe and that we're actually a random ball of debris rotating something much, much bigger than us, rotating around the sun, which is actually the center. You have instances in human history where people, the earth is not flat, it's round, where discoveries of similar magnitude absolutely blew people's minds. And some people fought it. And some people were, generally the people on the front edge were the innovators and, and the people who discovered were, were often persecuted and beaten for these new ideas. And then at some point it became normal. It just became how things are. So if this were to happen, the first question to ask would be, once we get through this, what's the new normal? Man, what a great question. And this person says, I have a question about selflessness, love, and Christianity. I'm a licensed professional counselor who has grown up in the church my whole life. I've been exposed to many different kinds of denominations and noticed that regardless of the Christian denomination, 
everyone tends to put an emphasis on selflessness and sacrifice when it comes to love. And then the person says that this clashes with her counseling psychology background. She was taught about healthy boundaries, learning to say no, um, taking care of ourselves, not losing ourselves in another person or act and not to be doormats. How do you combine these two ideas? In my own life, I have found this to be an issue in my marriage. I'm a very selfless person and I love to help others even at my own expense. This has led me to have a hard time saying no or putting boundaries in place with my husband because I always think this would be the loving Christian and selfless thing to do, even if it hurts me. When I began incorporating the word no and setting healthy boundaries with my husband, he got angry and asked, how can you not want to do this for me if you are a Christian? God's love is selfless and what you're doing is telling me you are not willing to do this for me. This made me question my beliefs. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I'm getting cranked up. Um, So... Can these two ideas exist? How do you maintain a loving and selfless love for someone while taking care of yourself? Great question. First off, sharing about your marriage like this. Uh, thank you. I can feel your pain. I can also feel your intelligence and your desire to sort this out. And I totally know what you're talking about. There is this notion of a spineless Jesus who comes to save the world, who is just a doormat for everybody. And then to be a follower of Jesus is just to serve, 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 just love, just let people push you around, just, you know, turn the other cheek, which is a total abuse of that passage. Just whatever it is, just take it and just keep giving, 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 giving. And you end up as uh, Anne Lamott says, you end up as a flight attendant to the world. So I have seen this in action, good hearted, beautiful people who just end up like flight attendants to the world. So, First off, what helps me is to think about when you get on an airplane, after they tell you how to use the seatbelt, they show you this oxygen mask that comes down from the ceiling that you put on, and they always say, put the mask on yourself before you help anybody else. First, I want to talk about airplane masks, then I want to talk about binaries, and then I want to talk about your husband. First, airplane masks. Everything you need to know is found in that simple gesture. You put the mask on yourself first. And you understand this from your counseling background. You take care of yourself and you start with yourself. You love your neighbor as yourself, which means you love yourself first. You take care of yourself. You do what you need to be healthy and full of life. You cannot give a gift you don't have. You cannot allow the love and life within you to spill over into the world if it is not present in you and overflowing from within you. And lots of religious people were not taught how to take care of themselves. And so they're trying to give a gift that they do not possess. You cannot give something you don't have, which I know my good sister asking this question, you already understand that. So uh, start with yourself and your boundaries, as you already know, are incredibly important. You can be an ocean of compassion and be very clear about your boundaries. There's that great line where someone asked Jesus, tell my teacher to divide the inheritance. And he's like, who appointed me judge between the two of you? You can be compassion incarnate and say to somebody, who appointed me to do that? It's not my job. Secondly, binaries. I want to talk about the difference between binaries and then non-dual tension. The question you're asking is, how do you balance? Is it this one or is it this one? How do you balance? And the answer is there is a tension there between your boundaries and care for yourself and how you give to the world. And in your question, you basically have articulated some of these ways that I give myself are violating myself. You, my sister, you know, you know. Listen to your true self. 
there is a Christ wisdom that you possess. It is not the wisdom of the people around you. It is not cultural messages. It is not what your husband has told you. It is your true self. It's like a radar. And it knows, you know when you have violated yourself. Trust that. Trust that. Health often brings division and conflict. When somebody begins to be healthy, it often brings conflict. So perhaps it's helpful to think about it less as a binary. Is it take care of myself or is it give to others? And more as a fluid tension that you live within. Think about it less as an either or and more as a tension. Or you could think about it as a, an energetic cycle in which you move from caring for yourself to giving for others to caring for yourself. Think about it like an energetic cycle and just ask yourself, where am I in the cycle? Oh, I'm exhausted. I need to care for myself. Oh, tank's full. Let's give. And then second or third, dear Lord, do I want to speak with your husband? Um, Him saying you should do this because you're a Christian is so, you already know this, it's so unhealthy and it's so manipulative and it's so wrong and it's so toxic and it's so crazy. I can't even stand it. I'm, I'm assuming that you already know this, but it's so devastating for the space between you. When someone says, how can you not want to do this for me if you are a Christian? There is so much unhealth in that sentence. You do not want to do this because it violates your sense of self and central to being a Christian is being a fully alive person with an integrated self, pursuing your true self with boundaries. There there are just so many layers there, but I would simply say this, pursuing health and pursuing your true self may bring all sorts of conflict. And that is the reality that very few people talk about. Think about the child of an alcoholic and all the siblings and the spouse of the alcoholic just play a role. And then finally that one kid says, I am not going to prop up this sick system anymore. Dad's an alcoholic. I'm not going to pretend he's not. And what does it do? The system cannot handle it. It either needs to woo the kid back into silence or it has to boot them and ostracize them and condemn them. But what the system can't do is continue on like that. So with your husband, a firm, loving, kind articulation of who you are, what you can do, what you can't do, and then your refusal to be manipulated by religious language that is a distorted understanding of what it means to be a Christian and a deeply toxic understanding of what it means for the two of you to have an energetic space between you where you give and take in a healthy rhythm of sacrificial love. And let's assume that your husband will come with you on this journey into greater and greater health. But I feel your heartbeat in this question. I feel the pain. It's less a binary than it is a fluid tension that you move among. You do not have to be a flight attendant to the world. You place that mask on yourself. You get all the oxygen you need so that you can help those around you. I am cheering you on. Grace and peace. Peace. 